This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canivery. Thanks for joining us. According to the nonprofit Anti-Defamation League, anti-Semitism has been on the rise here in the U.S. for the past two decades, and 2021 was the highest year on record for documented reports of violence, harassment, and vandalism directed toward Jews. Since it was founded in 1913, the ADL has been actively monitoring and documenting incidents of anti-Semitism, as well as advocating for policies and initiatives to counteract it. It has published this information in an annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents since 1979. Over the decades, researchers have worked to develop and improve ways to track incidents of anti-Semitism, and my guest today is among a small group of scholars seeking to better understand the phenomenon through research and controlled experimentation. Dr. Eyal Feinberg is Associate Professor of Political Science and Anti-Semitism Studies and Director of the Center for Holocaust Studies and Human Rights at Gratz College in Philadelphia. He was on the Florida Gulf Coast University campus last Thursday, August 31st, to give a talk titled The Promise of Experiments in Measuring Contemporary Anti-Semitism. So we brought him by the studio to talk and learn about his work. Let's hear that conversation now. Dr. Feinberg, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So for starters, tell us a bit about yourself and your background and your primary academic areas of focus. Sure. So... Let's start with my areas of focus. Uh, I'm really interested in the homeland-diaspora relationship, understanding how geopolitical events can affect communities, specifically those communities that are tied to other international actors that are at the heart of these these geopolitical events. Uh, Through that, I've really studied the effect that Israel has on the Jewish diaspora, both in the U.S. and around the world, and that's the origin of most of my research that focuses on uh, concerns related to to Jewish insecurity, both here in the U.S. and and in Europe. Tell us about Gratz College. It's an interesting place, especially for this uh, field. I'm so excited to tell you about Gratz. It's the oldest pluralist Jewish institution in the the U.S. for higher education. Uh, Our work today focuses primarily on graduate education. My job uh, as the director of the Center for Holocaust Studies and Human Rights at Gratz is overseeing three academic programs. The first is our Holocaust and Genocide Studies program, which is the largest graduate program uh, of Holocaust and Genocide Studies in the world with over 80 PhD students that I get to advise. We have a uh, robust human rights program as well, as well as an interfaith leadership program that I also get to oversee. Hmm. Um, Your bio says you're an expert in contemporary anti-Semitism and among a small group of scholars seeking to better understand the phenomenon through event count analysis and survey experiments. Can you explain like what that means? Because I know we'll get to the difficulty that lies in determining whether something is anti-Semitic or not, although it seems like it wouldn't be that complicated, but it clearly is. Can you explain what count analysis and survey experiments means? Sure. So event count analysis means that a lot of the work that I do looks at specific incidents and what explains variation in those incidents, their likelihood of occurrence. when it comes to thinking about this from a structural sense, bias incidents, hate crimes, terrorist attacks, those are my dependent variables, right? That's what I'm seeking to explain. Uh, and so event count analysis allows me, it's a quantitative approach 
to determining what causes variation in these events? What are the factors that help to explain it? When it comes to experimental approaches, think of it as just any other experiment. Uh, the, the advantage of utilizing experiments to study prejudice and specifically anti-Semitism is that we're able to control for a variety of other factors that might help explain anti-Semitism and really isolate very specific things that we're interested in testing. Uh, so the same advantage you have in, in medical research um, and other elements of science when you employ an experimental approach to study anti-Semitism, you have the advantage of wading through what is otherwise an exceptionally complicated issue, which you brought up, um, and, and really isolating specific mechanisms that might be the source of anti-Semitism. Is this idea of using an experimental approach relatively new, or has this been around for a while? Experimental approaches in, in social science, specifically uh, psychology, have been around uh, for, for many decades. In terms of using this approach to meaningfully advance the study of anti-Semitism, I'd say it's probably three to four decades old as a relatively robust area of study. And really over the last 15 years is where we've seen a group of committed scholars uh, utilizing this approach to better understand the phenomena. Um, you are a quantitative research fellow at the Anti-Defamation League Center for Anti-Semitism Research. Um, you kind of just touched on that, but does that mean you, in effect, are one of the researchers who contribute to the information that they distill and then disseminate? So, so my role at the ADL is, is comparatively small. I'm part of uh, a center for anti-Semitism research uh, that was started about a year and a half ago uh, we have a team of nearly 10, 10 scholars and practitioners that are devoted 100% of the time to examining anti-Semitism research. I play as a consultant there in an advisory role. Um, I help them in terms of conceptualizing specific measurements, thinking about optimal ways in which to design surveys or survey experiments, uh, thinking about uh, approaches when it comes to how do we define, how do we measure, how do we go about acquiring specific data that we might be able to utilize in our projects? So according to the ADL, uh, especially over the last 20 years or so, there's been a pronounced rise in anti-Semitic incidents in the United States. Your research focuses on that. Um, what can you tell us about what your research shows as to what could be causing that? I know that's the, the why is the hardest part of this equation, right? I, I think that's right. Um, my theoretical approach to understanding incident variation kind of relies on four prongs. So opportunity, distinguishability, what I would consider stimuli, and, and organization. And let me just quickly break that down. Uh, opportunity is the availability of targets for perpetrators. So you can think of opportunity as concentration of the Jewish population, but it can really be the concentration of any group that is being targeted for a prejudicial act, for a bias incident, or a hate crime. Uh, and so variation right, in the concentration of the group and group targets is going to be critical to explaining uh, anti-Semitic incident variation, broadly speaking. Uh, you have distinguishability, and that's the notion that in the case of the Jewish population, it's not always easy to distinguish a, a Jewish person or even a Jewish target um, from uh, institutional target from, from other people or, or other institutions. Uh, so the areas where those individuals and also those institutions uh, are distinctive, that's, uh, that increases the likelihood that, that they, of course, will be targeted. 
when it comes to stimuli, there are geopolitical events and factors that help to explain rises in, uh, in anti-Semitism. An example might be uh, an Israeli-Gaza escalation. Uh, we've seen that uh, certainly in 2021, but there's evidence that this dates back all the way to the early 2000s and having a significant effect on explaining anti-Semitic incidents and hate crimes, not just here in the U.S., but uh, most commonly in Europe. Um, Jewish holidays. Uh, so when we think about the celebration of popular Jewish holidays, Hanukkah, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Passover, there is an increase in anti-Semitic incidents that are reported here in the U.S. during that time. And then, of course, organizations, so those groups, those individuals that are committed to anti-Semitism, uh, where those groups and individuals are located, proximally, there is greater levels of anti-Semitism. Um, your talk that you're giving later today here at FGCU is called The Promise of Experiments in Measuring Contemporary Anti-Semitism. Um, when you say promise, that seems to allude to maybe there is developing techniques or ideas in having a better handle on this. Is that a fair assessment? I'm going to say something relatively controversial. I think that the study of anti-Semitism thus far has been a failed enterprise, um, not because there aren't many scholars that are really um, concerned with and, and deeply devoted to better understanding this phenomena. But as a, a collection of work, uh, a lot of our research doesn't build on each other. Um, there are certain disciplines that in, in academia that have kind of discarded the focus on, on anti-Semitism for a more generalizable approach. And so comparatively speaking, there's very little anti-Semitism studies work that's out there. When I talk about the promise of experimental work, I say promise because we really don't know yet the factors, the mechanisms that explain why some anti-Semitic attitudes and beliefs generate specific anti-Semitic behavior. Of course, at the end of the day, I think what we're most concerned about is the security of the Jewish community, but also the security of all marginalized or minority groups, all people. Um, how do we explain why some individuals are targeted or not? I don't believe that extant anti-Semitism research really has clear answers to that. We have so much more to do, and experiments provide a really promising way to isolate specific elements that explain behavior um, that a lot of the other data-based approaches we have just simply cannot do. Can you give an example of an experiment that would fall into that category, like in, in layman's terms? Is that, is that possible? Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll use uh, an experiment that I did with a colleague, Jacob, Dr. Jacob Scott Lewis, at Washington State. We were really interested in explaining why we're seeing this rise in anti-Semitic incidents when there are escalations between Israel and Gaza. Is this because Jews, broadly speaking, are blamed for the action of Israel? Is there a sense that Jews have a responsibility to speak out when Israel is engaged in behavior that some individuals feel is problematic? So what we did is we designed a, an experimental vignette. This treatment that we gave to our respondents had an image of a bombed out hospital. And it described in a short 
form. It looked very much like a newspaper article that you would see in the LA Times or the New York Times, um, the, the incident that took place. Now, this was a, a synthetic incident. It didn't actually take place. Uh, but what we did through this process was we treated our respondents showing them this story. And from showing them the story, we were able to evaluate what effect it had on determining if it heightened uh, a sense of Jewish responsibility for the actions of Israel and also a responsibility to speak out. So some individuals in our survey didn't receive a news story at all. Some saw a positive news story about um, Israel cooperating with um, other Arab countries as a result of the Abram Accords. We had Israel targeting Gaza in one of the vignettes. We had Russia targeting Ukraine in one of the vignettes. We had Saudi Arabia targeting uh, Yemen in one of the events. And we had ISIS uh, targeting uh, Afghanistan in, in one of the events. So we were able to evaluate across the board, right, first of all, what the exposure had, but more specifically, was the specific, were our findings specific to the Israel-Gaza context? What we find across the board is that in general, blame for connected communities to these international actors is relatively low. Responsibility to speak out is meaningfully higher. But only those exposed to the Israel-Gaza vignette only that vignette saw an increase. Uh, uh, only Jews, excuse me, American Jews saw an increase uh, in, in their responsibility uh, and being blamed for the event, whereas no other international actors associated with the vignettes that our respondents saw saw that rise. How do you design these experiments? I'm just I'm a I'm a amateur science person, so it's interesting to think that you have to at some point sit down and come up with that experiment and then put it into action. We let the real world uh, serve as our greatest motivation. So we saw grave collective concern from the Jewish community in in 2021, the where we saw the most recent kind of escalation between Israel and Gaza, and. There were many reported incidents on mainstream media sources like CNN and Fox News discussing uh, what was happening, and we didn't know why, right? That was the motivation for this survey. Is it about blame? Is it about a sense of responsibility? Is it about something else entirely? Um, and then utilizing, again, real-world examples, many people that were informed of what was ongoing in Israel and Gaza, what were they doing? They were reading articles online. So we generated an article that matched exactly what they were seeing. Um, and then we were aiming at testing what the response to that might be. Another article, uh, excuse me, another experiment that my colleague, Dr. Jacob Scott Lewis and I are doing, uh, we aim at understanding a national response to experiencing anti-Semitic hate crime. So we expose our respondents to anti-Semitic hate crime, and we're interested. Does that change their policy perspectives? Again, this is because this is what's happening in the world, and uh, it just needs to be done in a controlled environment uh, for us to really have the key takeaways we need to better understand this phenomenon. Is it possible to say from your data and your understanding of this issue um, who or which groups are most likely to be responsible for anti-Semitic actions or 
demonstrations here in the United States? Not very well, but we're improving in this capacity. So when we think about this at the incident level, um, like all crime, much crime goes unresolved in this country. If we don't know who the, the perpetrator is, the characteristics that they have, it's simply hard for us to meaningfully and systematically determine who's responsible. Uh, and then to group those uh, individuals, the perpetrators, into categories that would be meaningful and useful for us. Anti-Semitism occurs across the ideological spectrum. Um, we, we like to think about this issue uh, manifesting most frequently on our ideological poles, but it's true in the center as well. Uh, in, in terms of other actors and, and um, specifically groups that we, we need to be cognizant of, there are obviously hate organizations that are committed to anti-Semitism, that survive off of anti-Semitism, um, that you can't explain the other hate that they have for other minority groups without uh, understanding that, that uh, they're fully and solely committed to anti-Semitism first and foremost. Um, so there are specific cases that it, it's clear we can understand that uh, white nationalism, largely speaking, those committed to white nationalism are more likely to possess anti-Semitic attitudes. Those that are concerned with uh, xenophobia um, or exhibit, I should say, xenophobic attitudes in the United States, xenophobia is closely connected to anti-Semitism and this notion of Jews as others. And so there are these corollaries, there, there are correlates that, that we know, but it's hard to identify specific groups that um, w where anti-Semitism manifests. In reading up for this, I came across a paper called The Social Psychology of Contemporary Anti-Semitism. It was in the journal Israel Affairs, uh, published earlier this year, and it said that the belief in conspiracy theories was the strongest predictor of anti-Semitic behavioral intentions. Does that align with what you, what you know? I'm not sure exactly the source of that journal and whether it has a perspective that is different from your own or not. Conspiracy is critical to explaining anti-Semitism. Some people say anti-Semitism is conspiracy, that you can't actually disentangle. One doesn't lead to the other. One is an example of the other. Anti-Semitism is conspiracy in the sense that it's this belief in, that, uh, in a Jewish collective, right? When somebody's anti-Semitic, they're not targeting a specific Jew per se. They're targeting Jews, broadly speaking. Why would they be doing so? There's a belief that Jews act collectively as an in-group to benefit themselves. Well, how are they able to do that, given that they're such a small portion of this country's population at just about 2%, but in the world population, so much smaller than that, about 15 million, 16 million uh, out of... I think we're over seven and a half billion now. Yeah, fewer than there are people in Florida. That's exactly right. Um, so how does this small group operate in ways that enrich and benefit themselves at the expense of others? Well, that, that is inherently conspiratorial. Hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about the online world and its uh, effects on this. Um, as social media has risen, it's created the opportunity for anyone to put their thoughts out there to where then anyone can see those thoughts. What is your perspective on the role that the online world has played? You know, we say the last 20 years there's been a rise. We've had social media for about 20 years. Is there a correlation there? That's an excellent question, and it's a really hard question for me to answer. Um, in part, 
as you said, because a lot of advances we've made in data collection and measurement correspond with the development of social media. So it, it's hard to look back and feel comfortable uh, in saying that we're really identifying social media as a cause. What we can say with certainty is that there is a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism that exists on social media platforms. These organizations should be doing a much better job policing uh, the the rhetoric that that goes on, and and I'm 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 a close to a free speech absolutist. I'm not talking about the rhetoric itself, but if they violate the terms and the agreements of users, and they are targeting specific individuals, if the rhetoric is tantamount to a threat, um, these are things that the, the these organizations uh, these companies are required to to resolve. Um, Again, going back to the question about whether or not there's a tie between social media and, and an increase in anti-Semitism, I'd say that there is reason to believe that uh, those that are exposed very frequently to hate speech are, and, and their scholarship that speaks to this are, are more likely to become desensitized to the issues surrounding the Jewish community. They're more likely to develop anti-Semitic uh, attitudes and thinking. And there is a potential that that anti-Semitic attitude and belief, well, that that ultimately results in uh, anti-Semitic behavior that we, we measure at the incident level. But I also want to say something that's, that's relatively controversial again. Um, immediately following the Tree of Life synagogue massacre in, in 2018, um, Andrew Anglin, who is the founder of the Daily Stormer, one of the most heinous, vile, anti-Semitic outlets on the internet, um, said that the perpetrator of that attack uh, would not have gone forward with that attack if at the time the Daily Stormer was operational. At the time, I, I think that uh, the Daily Stormer was down. It, it couldn't find a, a web host, uh, and it was trying to. It was transferring from country to country, trying to figure out who would host its site. The idea here is that these anti-Semitic communities can provide outlets for individuals that prevent them from actually acting behaviorally. Interesting. Now, I I do not have any sort of systematic, meaningful empirics. And I'm certainly not advocating that people go and, sure, and engage sure. with these communities online. But I do think we need to be nuanced and we need to do the research to understand how these communities um, play a role in determining anti-Semitic violence. There's many reasons to, to believe that we shouldn't take the, the thinking of Andrew Anglin on this issue particularly seriously. But what we can say was that there was a reaction from elements of the white nationalist community, that this act that the perpetrator committed uh, was not done at the opportune time, that white nationalism was making incredible inroads politically. And so why jeopardize the mainstreaming of white nationalism with an attack that was just grossly impalatable for, for most Americans, um, that it was not strategic? 
Uh, last question. Um, your title of your talk is The Promise of Experiments. Do you see um, anything on the horizon in terms of uh, better ways of uh, aggregating and uh, understanding data, the large language models that allow us to do the big machine learning ourselves instead of having to be you know, a big company? Um, do you see a future where we'll have a better handle on this thanks to the tools that are coming up? I do. I do think that uh, our, our power to isolate specific mechanisms or factors, broadly speaking, using metadata, machine learning processes, I think that this is, is the future of a lot of work that examines prejudice. Uh, and when we think about predicting, again, what individuals possessing certain attitudes and beliefs might be most likely to engage in the behavior that we're so concerned about? This allows us an opportunity to engage in an in intervention at an early stage. We haven't yet talked about intervention, but I think that the, the future of anti-Semitism work is really also not just about identifying the factors that explain it, but also the, the way in which we develop programs and tools to meaningfully intervene to, to make sure that attitudes and beliefs can be countered um, and that these behaviors that we're so interested in tracking uh, never have the opportunity to take place. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have. Thanks to my guest, Dr. Ayal Feinberg is Associate Professor of Political Science and Anti-Semitism Studies and Director of the Center for Holocaust Studies and Human Rights at Gratz College. Dr. Feinberg, thanks for stopping by the studio to talk with me and our listeners. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. This conversation was recorded last Thursday before yesterday's news that Elon Musk is threatening to sue the Anti-Defamation League, blaming the nonprofit for the advertising revenue slump on X, formerly known as Twitter. Musk accuses the ADL of, quote, trying to kill this platform by falsely accusing it and me of being anti-Semitic. After the ADL reported a spike in hate speech on the platform following the reinstatement of some banned accounts. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Callaghan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.